Well, thank you very much. And I am deeply humbled by the fact that some of you who came last time have come once more. <laughs> it's lovely to see you, and thank you for spending time and coming. The book of Daniel has always fascinated me since childhood. Of course, its stories are brilliant literature. The three young men defying the huge emperor of Babylon and being prepared to go into the fiery furnace. Daniel in the lion's den, and so on. It was only much later in life that I began to realize that this book, when you take it philosophically, is a profound comment on many of the deep issues that affect us today. Because it was written at a time of transition. Daniel and his three friends were brought up in a monotheistic culture in Judah. And when Nebuchadnezzar and his army conquered Jerusalem around 605 BC, suddenly these brilliant young men in their teenage were taken to Babylon. And they were put into the education system for the elite of Babylon. I call it King's College Babylon. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar was a genius because he didn't just kill all the inhabitants of the countries he conquered. He took the best, trained them, and the second rank went back to the places from which they'd come to rule them, and the very best stayed in Babylon. So Daniel and his friends stayed in Babylon. Now, the remarkable thing about him is he left his home and presumably his family as a teenager. He was a believer in God. And the remarkable thing about it is he didn't simply maintain over a long life in public service his devotion to God, his private reading of Scripture and attending some kind of service. What he did that is so remarkable is simultaneously rose higher than any man I know of in history, in the sense that he did something utterly unique. He ran two consecutive world empires. There was nobody else in the whole of history has ever done that. He was at the very top under Nebuchadnezzar of the empire of Babylon, centered on Babylon city, and then when Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians, he rose to the very top of that empire as well, centered in the same city of Babylon. It was a regime change. And the fascinating thing, and the challenging thing to me is this. As I say, he not only retained his devotion to God, he retained his public witness to God. That's extraordinary. Because I've lived long enough to see many people who are highly qualified go to church read their Bible, say their prayers, but long since have they abandoned any attempt to communicate their faith because of the pressures of the surrounding society. So what we're seeing, in a way, a microcosm of something that's happening all around our world, where you get a little enclave of people who believe in God surrounded by a huge cultural machine that is a completely different worldview and feels that its worldview is the default worldview. And of course, the same is true today. Now, I want to suggest to you there's no default worldview. There are various worldviews.
And as some of you know, I want to contend for a public space in which the Christian worldview has a place in the discussion. I do not accept the view that is um, spread abroad by many academics that naturalism, or atheism for short, is the default worldview. There isn't one. There are different worldviews and they're competing in our society. They're competing for very big stakes indeed, determining ethics, for instance, and so on and so forth. So my approach to this book has been to say, what is it that kept this man stable enough to maintain public witness over a very long life? He writes the book as an old man. He served at the very top. He wasn't a, a ghetto-like person who fled public responsibility. He held enormously high public office in two world empires and yet maintained his faith. And my own, in a way, simplistic reaction, but it's important, is to say, if I can glean anything from this man that will help me to remain stable when the pressure comes from all sorts of directions, then that will be worthwhile. And so his choice of material is utterly fascinating. Now, I'd love to have time to describe to you the literary structure of this book. I'm a pure mathematician, and I wanted to be a linguist because I loved grammar, especially the grammar of Latin. The structure, I learned later on in life that ancient Latin poets had wonderful ways of constructing their poems by comparing things and doing a kind of geometric structure that you wouldn't perceive unless you looked for it, and yet it was carrying the message. And then I discovered that the Bible does something similar. And just to cut it very short, the story of the entire book is this. It is two halves. The first half concerns Nebuchadnezzar. He's mentioned in every single one of the first five chapters. So it begins with the conquest of Jerusalem, and it ends with the demise of Babylon as a world power, Belshazzar's famous feast that's been set to music and is represented in some brilliant art. And then you start up again, and Daniel's still in Babylon, but there's been a regime change. They weren't exactly voted in, these new people. <laughs> they simply took the place over. But, of course, I'm well aware that in a few months' time we will have, at a, another kind of level, uh, a certain bit of mixing and, and so on and so forth, which I would not dream of predicting. But the point is, it was a time of enormous transition. You go from one method of government to a new method of government. And that would be a very important thing, because Daniel is interested in the nature of government. What makes a good government? What makes a bad government? And so on. And all I'm going to do is indicate to you some of the big ideas that come up and leave them with you in this very brief introduction. But to start with, let's just read the odd introduction to this book. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's strikingly odd. 
you haven't read anything about Daniel yet. And what you've had is a fascinating and very risky observation about the nature of history. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, the Lord gave. Now, Judah was a tiny little state. <coughs> Babylon was a huge empire with mass troops and so on. Now, any historian would look at this and say, don't be silly, the Lord gave. Look, this is simply the survival of the fittest. You get a, a huge, powerful empire. You get a tiny little tin pot empire here. And of course, <laughs> the greater animal wins. So it was a very risky thing for Daniel to say, the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, it's an interpretation of history. Would you have risked that? Yeah, if it had gone the other way, it would have been much more impressive, wouldn't it? I mean, if Judah had, with its three and a half tanks and a few bows and arrows, had beaten up Nebuchadnezzar and his vast troops, then you might have said, well, the Lord gave them into his hand. But this way, and think about it again, Daniel had suffered immeasurably in the trauma of the conquest. And yet he's interpreting it as if God was involved. And that leads me to see two of the secrets of his stability. One, he had a concept of God somehow in control of global history. And secondly, he had a sense of God being in control of his own history. Those are big issues, aren't they? Life flows and ebbs. Who knows what tomorrow brings? But to have a deep-seated concept of God overarching in history, especially when you've just personally suffered loss, tragedy, by being part of it. You're being caught in the seismic flow, forces beyond your own control. And in a sense, we all feel that. Is there a God in charge of it all? What a daring thing to say when it appeared that all traces of God had been wiped out. This was Jerusalem after all, so-called city of the living God with a temple in which there were no images, unique in the ancient world. Well, surely God won't let anybody touch that, but he did. Absolutely nothing happened. Nebuchadnezzar walks in, takes the city and, as is said right at the very beginning, takes some of the vessels, the precious sacred vessels, out of the temple and God does nothing. There you are, says somebody, all this nonsense. It's all obviously a myth. It's simply a matter of power. And yet Daniel writes his book and he says that God was involved in this historical shift. It took courage. Of course, he explains himself. He is a brilliant author. Later in the book, in chapter 9, he says, of course, the reason that his faith wasn't shattered was that he expected this to happen. Because the prophets had again and again warned Israel and then Judah that if they compromised with the kind of polytheism of Babylon, they'd end up there. So when it happened, it was a confirmation to Daniel that the prophets had spoken the truth. So the odd thing is that when his experience was at its lowest level, it still provided a confirmation that God was in charge. That's extraordinary, isn't it? 
and it's good. Uh, let me give you a simple analogy. If you're given directions to a friend's house in the central highlands of Scotland, say, it's easy following the motorway and perhaps the A9 afterwards. And then you begin to run out of road and it gets rough. It's wonderful to have a map that says it gets rough here. Oh, I'm on the right road then. If it gets rough here, I'm on the right road. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. It got rough for him because there were big things afoot. And instead of simply being caught up with them, like a little, like a little shaving of a wood fire being caught in the smoke and blown away by a gale, he had a sense that God was in charge of it all. Because God is a moral God. And that's another very big issue. He learned to understand that God actually was serious about the way in which people live. So that's the first thing, history. And you know, for us too, in life, I find this immeasurably reassuring, that there's a God in control of global history. How? Don't ask me to explain it. And a God who's interested in my little history. That's marvelous. But there's more, you see. This mention of the vessels being taken out of the temple is very odd. You'd expect to read about Daniel. If you'd been writing this book about an invasion of your country and uh, various people being deported, would you have bothered mentioning a few vessels out of the temple? Of course not. And as a scientist, you see, I'm interested in anomalies. You get a little antenna for these things. If it's anomalous, it's, it'd probably be interesting. Well, think about those vessels. They were made of gold and silver. To the people in Judah, they were symbols of their highest value. They sat in the temple. They were for very special use in the service of God. They symbolized God as the absolute value. Now, why is that important? Because Daniel is about to embark on analyzing values from five different perspectives in the five succeeding chapters. And this is the first one. And to cut a long story short, just think what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took symbols which were for Daniel and his friends of absolute value, and he put them in his museum. You see, you're aware that museums around the world are full of stolen, I mean, full of uh, vessels from various parts of the world acquired by beings that aren't always so kosher. Um, and he put them in the section marked Judah, a sort of trivial, naive arrogance. Look at these lovely artifacts. Well, I actually conquered this nation. What a big boy am I? That's the kind of argument that lay behind that. But just thinking of what he did, he relativized those values. He had dozens of museum exhibits from different countries. He took what to Daniel and his friends were of absolute value, and he made them of relative value. Do you recognize anything there? He is speaking as a brilliant leader of men and of nations. And he's pointing out to us what he observed powerful people doing. And the number one thing is they take what's of absolute value and they relativize it. Once we've got that message, in chapter 3, he'll then point out what happens in the opposite direction. 
In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a, a statue with a head of gold, and he was told he was the head of gold. And that message went straight to his head, if you don't mind me putting it that way. So he built, in chapter 3, a huge statue of gold. And he set it up and he commanded his elite, not everybody, his elite, to fall down and worship it. And the three friends of Daniel refused. What was that? He was absolutizing the relative. He took the state and he absolutized it. We recognize that, don't we? You see, it is the fact, is it not, that people cannot live without absolutes. And if they reject a genuine absolute in God, ultimately, they end up by taking something relative and absolutizing that, whether it's power or sex or money or influence or whatever. And Daniel recognized those two trends. And his friends were not prepared to compromise with it. So, relativizing the absolute and then absolutizing the relative. And I might point out that that little scene of the three friends is an extreme example of the value decision that ultimately lies behind so many different things. Because you see, these men were all living in palaces. They had very high-powered jobs just below Daniel in the empire. And so the choice that had to be made was everything was on one side. Their job, their pension, their wives, their children, their houses, their power. The only thing on the other side was God. You imagine them saying goodbye to their families. Some people say, you know, these men never suffered. God delivered them half a minute. They suffered agony before they got anywhere near that fire. Saying goodbye to your wife and saying, I'm not going to bow. But why not, dear? It's all trivial. Surely the prophets have said these idols are nothing. I'm still not going to bow. And as we sit in this room, you are aware that there are people who will face that choice before we're finished tonight. It's real, isn't it? How would we react? I look at my own heart and I quail. But Daniel is raising in his book the ultimate value decision. When the chips are down and when everything is piled on one side and only God on the other, what would I say? And he gives us his answer. So, uh, that's, there's a matter of history then. There's a matter of values. And there are several other things that I'm going to mention very briefly. The first of them is that Nebuchadnezzar did a clever thing. At least the dean of students in King's College Babylon did a clever thing. He got these men and he changed their names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar and so on. That seems very innocent to us, but it wasn't. It was social engineering. He was homogenizing people. He was homogenizing the elite and you see, Daniel is a Hebrew name that means God is my judge. He wasn't allowed to be in public to witness to the fact he believed that there was a higher court of justice. So they called him Belteshazzar, treasurer of Bel, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. I find this absolutely fascinating. Make them all the same. Nobody must stand out. I have often imagined Daniel being quizzed about his name Daniel at the first dinner at the refectory in the university. 
and explaining his name, God is my judge. And some Babylonian students say to me, oh dear, oh dear, what, a, what an awful concept of God. He's your judge. No wonder you guys were beaten up recently. I mean, goodness me. And Daniel might have said, oh, I thought we were going to a class on law tomorrow. Didn't one of you say you were going to be a lawyer? Uh, what is the buttress behind your concept of judgment? Do you think your moral conscience has a, a, an anchor, or is it all arbitrary and a matter of opinion? How are you going to make decisions? And you can see the conversation going, just about his name, but he wasn't allowed to do it. Make them all the same. And we recognize those pressures. Make them all the same. Now, the interesting thing is, Daniel and his friends didn't appear to protest about this. They did protest a bit later at the food, as you know, if you've read the story recently. And they refused the rich king's food, and they asked to be given only vegetables. But let me just point out that your name is an important thing. It's a matter of identity. First history, second values, third identity. What does my name mean? What sort of a name have I got? And every one of you who works in these buildings has got a name. I've got a name. We've all got names. We've got reputations. We stand for something. What is my name? And you know, this is no innocent business. I'd love to have time to explain it to you, but I haven't. Because this is Babylon. And Babylon has a foundation in scripture, and its basic philosophy was, let's build a city and a tower for skyscraper. And if you read about skyscrapers, you'll discover that behind every skyscraper there's an even bigger ego, but I'm not going to go into that. The important thing about Babylon is let us make a name for ourselves that we may not be scattered. The whole driving philosophy of this ancient city was using human brilliance to create our own significance and our own name. Do we recognize that? Of course we do. Of course we do. And God called Abram out, to cut a long story short, and he said, Abram, come out of there, and I will make your name great. And there are only two ways of living, aren't they? And they compete within our breasts. Either I'm desperately trying to make a name for myself, and if I'm not careful, my wicked old heart might just trample over you to get that name. Or else I'm having a big battle to rest content with the name and the significance that God gives to me. And that's not an easy one, is it? It's easy to talk about, but it's not an easy one. But you can see huge issues are coming. And the point is, Daniel, he lived in Babylon. The issue for him was not which city he lived in. The issue was which city he lived for. And the New Testament talks about the city that Abram sought, his great ancestor, that has the foundations whose builder and maker is God. And the basic foundation of that was trust in oneself. No, but trust in God, faith in God. So it's taking some of the seminal themes of the Bible and bringing them together in a superb way. And then the protest, and I believe, to cut the story short, that it wasn't so much the food, it was the wine. 
And why do I say that is very simple. I can imagine that King's College Babylon was like Emmanuel College Cambridge, where I studied. That the scholar said something, grace at night, and so on. You can't imagine a city with 1,137 temples which didn't have libations to the gods in front of the formal meals. And I suspect, I don't know, I can't prove it to you, but Daniel thought, if I go down that line, I'll end up where? Well, think of the end of Babylon. Well, when did it happen? Those vessels. Do you remember Belshazzar's feast? He got the vessels out of the museum, put them on his table, forced a thousand of his nobles to drink out of them, and worship the gods of wood and stone. Hey, those vessels are important. They're cleverly mentioned at the beginning. They now become the reason why the empire fell. That is a very solemn thing. And Belshazzar was slain that night. The writing on the wall, you remember? Which everybody could read. If it came in the modern world, it would be the euro sign, the pound sign, the dollar sign. But nobody understood it. It was values. It was God evaluating Belshazzar. Belshazzar evaluated God at zero. God evaluates Belshazzar at zero. And the empire collapses. But Daniel had set a compass bearing in university. He wasn't prepared to compromise with the idolatrous interpretation of the universe. I just mentioned this because Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of empire change, the head of gold, the shoulders and neck of silver and so on. And he's looking at a massive problem because Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in his interpretation of the dream, after you will arise a kingdom inferior to you. In what sense, we ask? Because when you eventually get to Medo-Persia, you discover something revolutionary about it. And I think this will interest you. Babylon was an absolute monarchy in the ancient sense. Whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive, is the description of Nebuchadnezzar. If he got out of bed with a headache and you were the first person to meet, you might find you had a headache too. He didn't, he wasn't subject to any kind of law. Now in Medo-Persia, we have a huge transition. And you know about it because it's enshrined in the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians. Daniel chapter 6 is about law. The famous story of the lion's den is an analysis of the nature of law. And here you had the emperor subject to the law. And you would immediately think, this is an advance. Isn't it marvelous to have a law? Aren't we glad there's a law that's external to ourselves, to which you and I are both subject? And the top civil servants decided to get rid of Daniel. And the discussion is fascinating. They got MI5 and the KGB and everybody else to search out his life, and they couldn't find anything against him. Spectacular. I wonder if the Secret Services were to work on me or you, what they'd find out. But that's another matter. So they said, we not find anything against him, except it's in the law of his God. So what did they do? They created a positive law that forced a clash between the law of God and the law of the state. It's the first time in this book 
that there's been positive discrimination. Up to this point, there's been pressure on the believers to get involved in pagan practice. But now we descend by a subtle and brilliant step to Daniel being refused permission to publicly pray. He wasn't to be allowed to practice his public faith. And the king, of course, they, the civil servant came to the king and they said, Darius, oh boy, you know, this is a big empire to run and we've only just taken it over. Now, don't you think we've been thinking it might be a good idea just for a month, just for a month, so we don't disturb too many people to get them all worshipping the same thing. And we thought, you, your majesty, might be a suitable... Uh, Oh, really, said Darius, and fell for it completely. And he signed it. The law of the Medes and Persians that cannot alter, neither can it change. And then he realized he'd been tricked. So he tried to change the law. Now, this is fascinating in our contemporary world because you know far better than I do because you pass laws. But the thing about law is that once it's on the statute book, it's almost impossible to reverse. That's the whole point of it. And he tried, the emperor tried the whole day long. Nebuchadnezzar would have just torn it up. But oh no, he tried all day long and he couldn't reverse the law. Fascinating, isn't it? As a comment on the ancient world, as a comment on the contemporary world. And in the end, Daniel had to go into the lion's den. And the emperor said, I hope your God can deal with that. And he did. And he spent a sleepless night, did the emperor, and came and in a very sepulchral and ludicrous voice. He spoke to Daniel and discovered he was still alive. Then he forgot all about the law and he threw all these people into, into the den. I don't know how he justified that before Parliament, but there we are. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, this book is dealing with very serious topics. If I see the major change in the middle of this book between those two empires, and the thing that the book focuses on is the way in which law is used very cleverly to positively discriminate against the public expression of faith in God, my ears go straight up. It's happening all around the world today, isn't it? And that's why it's so important there are people like yourselves where you are. So important. Because we talk about stealth laws, don't we? We don't realize they're there until they're there. You know, and I'm going to finish with this. People often ask me, are these things real to you? Well, let me tell you one incident. I don't usually like to talk about myself, but I'll share this with you. When I was 19 at Cambridge, I was sitting at dinner one night beside a Nobel Prize winner and I tried in a very pathetic way to witness to him and he wasn't at all impressed so he invited me up for coffee afterwards with three other professors, no students. And I can see it now. He said, Lennox stood up and I was sitting. Do you want a career in science? I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, the first thing you do is give up your childish faith in God. It'll cripple you. It'll hold you back. You'll never get anywhere. Give it up. It's pressure, isn't it? And I said, sir, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've got? And he came out with some remote 
Bergsonian evolutionism that most people have never heard of. And I can remember saying to him, I was shaking from head to foot, I said, sir, I think I'll risk it and stay with what I've already got. The book of Daniel, to my mind, is a very powerful book because it raises very deep issues that I find raised by people in all professions around me. The whole question for each of us who makes a Christian profession is, where can I get stability? Where can I get courage? Where, how can I overcome the fear battle and the shame battle which we all face in our societies? And how can I maintain that public element to my witness and not allow myself to sink under secular pressure to restricting my faith to the private sphere? Thank you very much indeed.